Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here into these spaces this morning, and we pray that you, O Lord, would do a gracious work of, by your Holy Spirit, illumining your word to us that we would understand, and no matter where we come from here this morning, that by your Spirit we would be brought through your word to the word, even Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and resurrected, who who welcomes anyone and everyone by grace, and as we'll sing later in the service, grace alone. Father, be with us now, we pray, Jesus, in your name and for your sake. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to faith and belief in God and Christianity and all of that stuff, there are any number of faith diminishers or faith defeaters, defeater things, at any given time. And sometimes the faith diminishers or faith stressors They change from time to time and culture to culture around the world, and that's okay. For example, the prominent, culturally speaking, here in the late modern West, faith defeaters here are different than what you'll find, say, in the Middle East or in the Far East or other places. But for here this morning, I want to talk about one that's kind of a perennial, one that I think abides from age to age, and maybe this is a faith stressor that you face in your own lives. Namely, this. Why don't I believe in God? Why don't I believe in God more than I do? Why don't I take more steps in that direction? Because I don't get it. I don't get God. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Why would I believe in this God that just doesn't make sense? And then if you explore Christianity, you start reading the Bible 
and then periodically you get freaked out. This God of the Bible is pretty out there, is really crazy. I just don't get it. I've been in that boat. I imagine that many of you have been in that boat as well. And then we look around the world, and we have a lot of why questions. God, if you exist, why? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is this happening over here? Why are you allowing that to happen over there? A lot of questions. And here at Liberty Collingswood, we want, a place, we want to be a place where you feel comfortable asking those questions, making those explorations, weighing things in a safe space. We're all for that. And let's face it, this is one of those passages that I just read that gets a little bit crazy. What's going on here? And I've got to tell you, when over the summer I decided, hey, we're going to continue our sermon series in Genesis. We, st we restarted the sermon series last week, by the way. I knew that coming down the pike very soon was going to be Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20, this passage. And I was wondering, I'm going to have to figure out what to say about a passage like this. What do I say? God, why did you allow this to happen? What's going on? Who should I emulate in this passage? We talked in our Bible 101 course over the summer where it's probably not the best tool in your Bible reading toolbox to only read the Bible, any passage to say, okay, I need to spot the good guy, and then I'm going to be like the good guy or the good girl. Who's the good guy or the good girl in this passage? You probably don't want to be Abram, probably don't want to be Pharaoh, probably feel sorry as we should in sympathy for what happens to Sarai in this story. A lot of crazy things and so I don't blame you if for a passage like this or other ones, you might say, I just don't get it. And typically, if we say, I just don't get it over and over and over again, when it comes to things of faith, we walk away or we don't take steps towards. All that stuff that I just said, I think is true. And also let me give you a balancing perspective. Here's what I find interesting. As we look at a passage like this, the Bible, whether here or in other places, seems fairly unconcerned about whether or not you get God. Let's try this idea on for a little while. The Bible seems unconcerned about whether you get God or not, because I think from the world of the scriptures, even though it makes all the sense in the world for us to say, I don't get God, this is a faith stressor, in the mind of the scriptures, it's, there's just one God anyway. Hope you like him, but this is the only one we've got. And in the world of the scriptures, it's not for God to accommodate himself to us. It's the other way. It's for us to, to accommodate ourselves to God. Bible passage from Isaiah 55, which actually also Isaiah 55 was our call to worship here this morning, a passage that summarizes a lot of this line of thinking in the scriptures. Through Isaiah, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, 
and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The logic of a passage like that is, of course you don't get me completely, because I'm God, and we're just creatures. Or the book of Job. I think in late modern West consciousness, we might like the book of Job. If you're familiar with it, it's in the middle of the Old Testament, very ancient book, and it's all about what we as modern people would, would call the problem of evil. God, why do all of these bad things happen to people that are pretty good? So we gravitate towards a book for those reasons, but if you read towards the end of the book of Job, when everything is wrapped up, it goes in a direction that's very different than what the modern mind might want to hear. There's all this back and forth between Job and his friends. What about this? What about this? And then finally, at the end of the book, God says, now it's my turn to speak. And he doesn't say, if we were writing that part of the book of Job, God doesn't say, hey, thanks so much for these questions and these concerns. I understand exactly where you're coming from. Let me do my best to explain myself to you so that you can add it to your wellness regimen. God does not go in that direction. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He tells Job, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. And then all of these rhetorical questions begin pouring out. Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And God goes on to say all this creation stuff. Did you create this? Did you create this? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion like I can, the very galaxies and stars? And then Job comes back with one last word as well. And again, if we were writing the end of the book of Job, in terms of modern consciousness, Job might say something like, I feel heard. I feel seen. Thank you, and I will continue to speak my truth. Doesn't go in that direction. Then the Lord answered Job and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." Yikes! That's pretty crazy. But here's my prayer for this morning. As we all have those moments when we say, I just don't get it, I just don't get God, instead of feeling ourselves pushed away from God or even repelled, what if we would be intrigued instead? What if there actually could be something positive and real and good for us about a God who is this big? And think of it this way. If there is a God that truly is the creator of all things and is larger than us, of course we're not going to get everything. But that also means, to me, that God is real, that God is personal. And also, if we lose a God, when every once in a while we don't get everything, I say we lose a God that's real, and we also lose a God of grace. So that's going to be our sermon laboratory for this morning, and we're going to try to take apart this passage a little bit. We're going to spend a little more time than usual in the sermonic interpretive kitchen instead of just the sermon 
nice dining room. Ah, oh, here we go. We're going to try to do a little more interpretation to get our minds around this passage under these two headings. When we don't get God, we actually gain a God that's real, number one. And then number two, we gain a God of grace. When we don't get God, we gain a God who is real, and we gain a God of grace. So what can we say about this story? On the surface of things, it's pretty easy to understand. It's pretty easy to interpret. Story so far, we kicked off, like I said, the sermon series last week. The story of Abram, who becomes Abraham, and Sarai, who becomes Sarah. God says, go, leave from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And so Abram goes. The passage before this one says, then Abram went as God had told him. So he was in the land of Ur, you are in upper Mesopotamia, journeying towards the promised land, gets as far as this place called Haran. But then we pick up the story here. There's a famine. And then Abram and Sarai decide to go down to Egypt, which is not crazy. Egypt, relative to other places in the ancient Near East, was better buffered against famine and drought because of the Nile River and the irrigation system that they had developed down there. So that's where we pick up the story. Now, there was a famine, verse 10, in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. But pretty immediately, it starts to go sideways, and Abram hatches this scheme to save his skin. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, there might be a half-truth here. We find out later in Genesis, Abram says to Sarah, his wife, we have the same father and different mothers, so they might be half-brother or half-sister already, and or some commentators say maybe Sarai was adopted into Abram's family. I get it. It's weird either way. But then Sarai is taken, I'm sure, against her will. And then Abram is blessed. Continuing on the story here. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he, did, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And then the denouement, in which not Abram is struck, but Pharaoh, who was the one that was lied to. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. But then Abram's rebuked. Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her. Go. Get out of here. And then they return. They go back to Haran and then into Canaan, the promised land, for the good promises that Abram has, that God has for Abram and Sarai. And so, if at one level, this story is pretty straightforward, as modern readers, we come back to this story and say, we have notes. We have lots of notes. Here are a few notes that we might have. What's going on with Abram? What are his motivations? Why is he doing this horrible thing to his wife we imagine that he loves? And what changed in Abram from a model of faith? Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And Abram does it. He's a model of faith in that passage. Now he's a dirtbag. What changed? 
we might imagine why as well. Why does Abram get plagued? Sorry, why does Pharaoh get plagued and not Abram? And why is Abram blessed? Why does he get all of this stuff? Why does God, through his sovereignty, give Abram all of this stuff? And then God, why do you allow all of this stuff to happen? We have questions. But again, the questions that for us as modern readers, we would be interested to ask, seemingly, evidently, the author of Genesis doesn't seem terribly concerned to answer. But we're in this situation where we don't get it. And to get the God that is real, let me say that there are two sides to the coin. To get the God that is real, we do, yes, have to get God, at least a little bit. If we don't get anything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus, if it's just all Greek to me and we don't understand anything about God, of course we're not going to be a follower of Jesus. So there are things that we need to get, but it's also okay, and we don't need to freak out if at the same time there are things that we don't get. In both of those directions, we are driven to the God that is there and the God that is real and the God that is true. Things that we can get about this story, let's circle back around again. I think implicitly it's clear enough, and I feel pretty confident about this, that this story is casting shade against Abram. This story is saying implicitly that Abram is behaving badly. He's not a good guy. We should not emulate him. He was earlier. He will be again, but not here. Previously, in the passage before we talked about it last week, God was talking to Abram. God appeared to Abram, and Abram was following pretty straightforward. Here, in this story, Yahweh is silent, and Abram is scheming. Abram's behaving badly. And commentators are pretty united in saying that the rebuke that Pharaoh gives to Abram here at the end of this passage, in this instance, Pharaoh is serving as a proxy to God. So God is speaking as if through Pharaoh giving this rebuke to Abram. So there are some things, even with the weird passage like this, that we can begin to wrap our minds around a little bit. And that's a good thing. Be comforted as you continue to examine the scriptures and examine your faith and examine yourself before God. There are things we get. And to me, it even resonates and in a backdoor kind of way is encouraging to me that Abram's a bum, that he's doing the wrong thing. Should he have done it? No. But backdoor encouragement, hey, for me, Jim, as a follower of Jesus, I mess up all the time. And it's encouraging to me to go into the scriptures and see that for so many of the men and women that follow God, almost to a person in the thousand of biblical characters, the only one that we encounter who doesn't mess up is Jesus. All the rest of them do. And wait a second, Pharaoh is actually acting a little bit better, relatively speaking, than God's chosen person, Abram, here. That's encouraging because sometimes people outside of the church act a lot better than people inside of the church. And so, as you engage the scriptures, as you think about God, find things that you get. And there's a flip side. Sometimes there are things that we don't get about God, but that's okay. Let's make a list in your mind right now. 
make a list of all of the people that you know that you get completely, that never surprise you, and you understand them totally. Zero. We don't even get ourselves totally. So if you think about it, it's not crazy or super unusual to say, hey, I don't get everything about God. Of course you don't. We don't get everything about anybody. And I think in the modern consciousness, when we say, okay, if I don't get and if I'm not on board with absolutely everything that God is, I'm not going to be in relationship with this God. That is an impossibly high standard that we don't apply to any other relationship with personal beings. So it's okay not to get everything. And if God truly is the creator of the universe and Lord of all things, is it really crazy for God to say, just as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts? Of course, because that God is God and we are not. And also, there can be a little bit of hubris built into the equation too. What does that really say about my opinion of myself? If I would in my heart of hearts say, you know, if I were writing the story, if, if I were building God from scratch the ground up, if I were writing the script, I would do it much better. I would do it perfectly. Would we really? And so we need both. When we don't get God, we gain a God that's actually real and press in both to trying to understand God, but then also being okay when we don't. That's the first part. Now let's talk about when we don't get God, we actually gain a God of grace. So what's this story about? I can't just keep circling around. It is kind of my job to tell you, hey, this is what I think the Bible passage for this morning is about. Here's what I think. Accessing a story like this is a real-time, real story that illustrates what the Apostle Paul told Timothy many, many, many years later. And it's our reflection quote for here this morning in your worship folder, 2 Timothy 2.13, where the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, if we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. So this story demonstrates that Abram is an idiot and God's blessing him anyway. Unlike Abram, the model of faith, earlier on in Genesis chapter 12, and also he's going to be a model of faith again next week in Genesis chapter 13, Abram's an idiot, he's a mess, but God has decided to bless. But that gives me hope because if God still will bless idiots like Abram. He'll bless, by grace, idiots like you and me. Because we also can be messes. Remember, in the call to Abram at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 12, you can go back and look at it. After God says, go, God makes some promises to Abram. He says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. Whoever blesses you, I will bless and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. To you, I will give this, to your offspring, I will give this land. 
And so here, God is blessing, not because of Abram's goodness, but despite it. Abram's not good. God is being faithful to his promises just because he chooses to be faithful to his promises. Not because of Abram, not because of us. And think of it this way. There was no chance that Abram was going to die in Egypt because God had already told him, you're going to have offspring and I'm going to give you the promised land. By this point in the story, Abram and Sarai have not had any children yet and they're in Egypt. God said, you're not going to die there. You're going to have the promised land that I am going to give to you. And also, if God said earlier, whoever curses you or distresses you or dishonors you, I'm going to curse. Object lesson here. Pharaoh is afflicted, whether he fully knows what's going on or not. And by the way, we do see an impulse to justice in this passage too. By modern standards, this would be a sexual assault what Pharaoh perpetrates upon Sarai, right? Most probably, she doesn't have the agency and the ability to, to say no. So let's not cry too much for Pharaoh. There, there is some justice. This is another one of those things that we can get about God. Okay, yeah, Pharaoh's afflicted. Abram might be the greater offender because he sets all of this in motion and lies to Pharaoh. But yeah, good. That's just for Pharaoh to be afflicted in this way. And it's just as God said. Whoever dishonors you or distresses you, I'm going to come after them because that's part of what I promised. So Abram is blessed and he gets all this stuff, the camels and the servants and all of those things, despite himself, because God said, I'm going to bless you. And so, bottom line, bottom line, counterintuitively on the surface, but as I've lived with this passage for years, friends, this is a story of grace. This is a story of grace. God has chosen to grace Abram despite himself, even though he doesn't deserve it. And grace is one of the main, and grace is mysterious. And it's one of the main reasons as to why I'm a follower of Jesus in the first place because grace is mysterious. And grace is so unique that when you think about it, you don't find grace anywhere else. And there's a part of grace that I still don't get to this day. God, it's kind of not fair. Why do you bless Abram like this? It's not fair. He didn't deserve it. And God comes back and says, exactly, that's why grace is grace. And that's why grace is radical. And I think for us as modern people, we'll say, give me the grace, give me the love, but I'm not sure about the mystery. I want to get everything. And sometimes grace isn't fair. I'm not sure I'm on board with that. I'm not sure I get that. But if you lose the mystery of grace, the not fairness of it, you lose grace. At one level, grace is designed for us not to get it. And if we were writing our own story, I guarantee you that chances are eventually we would revert back to some type of God you need to bless the good people. Who are the ones doing the best work? Bless them. God comes around and says, well, that's not grace. 
And just as Pharaoh, the lesser offender here in this passage, is afflicted, that's a foretaste of what happened to Jesus. Where Jesus is the lesser offender, isn't he? In fact, didn't offend at all. The Bible says that even though Jesus was tempted in every way, he was without sin. God, it's not fair that in Jesus we receive blessing, salvation, forgiveness, freedom in Christ, the Holy Spirit that brings change to our lives and is unleashed upon the world for good. God, that's not fair that Jesus had to take that punishment for us. And again, God says exactly. Where we are loved and we are forgiven, not because we're awesome, but God knows that we're not. Here's Jesus instead. And that's all I got for this morning. Let's appreciate the God, even when we don't always get everything, what we can get and what we don't presses us forward into the God that is real and the God that gives grace. Let's be honest about our questions and talk, but be humble about our questions to God as well and also more grateful and more patient than we might otherwise be because of grace. The world needs more people like that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.